Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada and however you have found our podcast we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website www.duncanchurch.com you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. If you're new or visiting, super happy you're here. Welcome to anyone who's watching online right now or in the future. And you know what? I want to start off with a question, okay? I want to know, have you ever uh, had a picture, maybe even like a physical one in your home, maybe as like a screensaver or on a calendar, maybe just in your mind? Have you ever had a picture of something, of a place? Maybe it was even just like an experience of like skydiving, bungee jumping. Have you ever had a picture in your mind of something, somewhere you would like to go, something you would like to do, and then have you went to that place or experienced that thing and had a moment where you were like, the picture just paled in comparison to the actual thing, right? Has anyone ever had a moment like that? Has anyone ever been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah, been to the Grand Canyon? I I don't know. I might be alone on this. It was very anticlimactic. When I went. Yes? Okay. Andrea and Peter just went there. Okay, I didn't want to say anything to you guys, but I was like, I don't know. It's uh, womp womp, like hole in the ground. Um, no, it is amazing. But I, I have had moments like that in my life, and there's actually two in particular where I was like really struck with the awe of like being in a place and being like, man, I, I didn't realize that it was quite like this, even though I had had a picture in my mind. And the first one that I kind of experienced was when I was playing hockey in Germany, I had the opportunity to uh, travel to Rome on a weekend off. And I went to Vatican City. I went to the Vatican and it was like remarkable. Like I was an absolute awe of just like the tap the tapestries guys i was in awe of the tapestries that were hanging in the halls so it was incredible i just like walked around with my jaw on the ground in awe the entire time and just thinking like man some of the pictures that i've seen they don't really do this justice that was one moment for me and another moment that i had this one was even bigger this one like it still impacts me uh, i'm honestly probably going to like I might break out in a heat rash and anxiety just sharing this story with you this morning. And it was uh, an encounter that I had with the ocean, with discovering the awe of the ocean. So one time, I fa- and like, I'll just say this, I wasn't oblivious or unaware of the grandeur of the ocean prior to this encounter, okay? I, I knew what happened there. I'd seen Titanic, all right? Uh, I've watched Shark Week. I've watched that movie Chasing Mavericks, you know, the guys who surf like the 75-foot waves. Anyways, I was, I was aware that the ocean is like, oh, it's really big. I knew that, okay? But 
We were on a family vacation, and on our vacation, we stopped at the island of Turks and Caicos, and I was going snorkeling. So I'm snorkeling around, and where we were, actually, it was a very touristy area, so they had, like, the buoys and rope, right? So, like, where they can herd all of the tourist cattle. So I'm swimming around in there, and I quickly, quickly decide that this is not good enough, that this rope and this buoys, these are restricting me from experiencing the fullness that I would like to experience here in the ocean. So I take off. I just kind of swim away from there to wherever I felt like. And I quickly discovered that not far past those buoys, though, like the ocean floor disappears. Like, I mean, complete drop off into just like abyss. Like, I can't see anything. Now, Having, I mean, I'd been in the ocean a lot, but I'd never quite experienced it like that. So I decided I want to like, I want to feel the fullness of this right now. And so I decided I was going to swim as far out over this abyss as I could. I was going to take as big a lung a breath that I could. I'm going to dive down and I'm just going to sit. I'm just going to just like get into this darkness and just hover there and stare around and just try and like feel the way. Yeah, like I'm getting chills right now remembering this moment. So I ignorantly, naively do this and I'm under the water and I'm and like it's like it's when the blue just becomes black and I'm staring below me and just overcome with awe and fear and wonder of like you know the wonder it starts off with like I wonder what's down there and then it quickly goes into like I wonder what's down there and I'm like st like panic just overtakes my body and I just felt the weight and I guess the glory in many ways of the breadth and depth of the ocean, something that no photo was ever able to communicate to me, all right? So that was one other moment for, that I experienced. That was another moment for me. And I'll just say this, uh, I was very happy to stay with the herd after that. Okay, I didn't feel like I needed to swim out over the darkness anymore after that first encounter. I got that out of my system. So anyways, why do, I, why do I tell you that story? Why do I bring up these things? Well, it's because, as I mentioned, I hate winter and I just want to talk about somewhere hot. Uh, no, that's not why. It's because thinking about these things, thinking about, hey, I was given a picture, then I encountered a thing, and it was so much greater than even the image that I had been working with previously. This is kind of what our author is talking about here in Hebrews. Actually, it's not kind of. This is exactly what our author is talking about in Hebrews. He is going to be talking to these people and trying to help them to understand and see that what God has done for them, what Jesus has accomplished is so much greater than the picture that they had been functioning in and come to know in their lives. Now, uh, last week we were talking about Melchizedek, right? And so when we started talking about Melchizedek, I mentioned that chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 here in Hebrews, they're all going to kind of flow together. They kind of carry a very similar topic and theme, and that topic and theme is simply Jesus as our high priest, and Jesus' function and his role and his place in the tabernacle. It's just a kind of a quick overview of Old Testament worship and law. So we talked about Melchizedek last week, and if you weren't here, you can go and watch that online because he's this kind of obscure Old Testament figure who then, for 
almost somewhat confusing reasons, the author of Hebrews decides, I'm going to anchor an entire argument on this man that many people are confused by. So we talked about him, and we talked about what Scripture reveals is that Melchizedek was a legitimate high priest, Okay, that Abraham showed and revealed that Melchizedek was due honor, that he was seated higher, that Scripture reveals there was two ways you could actually serve as high priest. It wasn't just the Levitical priesthood in line, but Scripture is suggesting, no, there was another legitimate line to high priest, and that was Melchizedek. And because of all these things, that legitimizes Jesus as our great high priest, because Scripture says he comes in the order and line of Melchizedek. So that's what we were talking about last week in Hebrews chapter 7. And if you were here, you may have remembered me saying that I, I kind of compared it to like a job description, right? Like if the job posting came out for great high priest and you were on Indeed and you were searching for a job and you're like, oh, great high priest, what's this? And then you went and looked and you're like, what are the qualifications, right? Because that's like the first thing. That's kind of like step one. You see a job and you're like, I'm interested. That sounds interesting. You then should look at your qualifications. Do I qualify for this job? And so that's what Hebrews 7 was saying. It was saying, here's what the qualification is for high priest. Jesus meets this qualification. Now, what we're doing here in chapter 8 is, if I can just stick to that theme of kind of like career choices, it's almost a little bit now like, okay, uh, performance review. Okay? It's like, okay, Jesus is able. He is qualified for this job. Yes, and now the author is saying that's great, but is he doing the job better? How is he at performing the job? Now, this topic is actually going to be built out even more in uh, the coming chapter of Hebrews, in Hebrews 9, but our author is going to start shifting us into this conversation right here in Hebrews 8. So, we're going to read Hebrews 8. If you haven't opened up your Bible yet, I suggest that you do that. Grab a Bible Hebrews 8, we're going to start in verse 3 because we jumped in. We just dipped our toe in Hebrews 8 at the end of our sermon last week. And I'm going to break it down into two chunks. We're going to read verses 3 to 6, go back, kind of talk about them verse by verse, and make our way through an entire chapter again this morning. All right. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 to 6. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it was necessary for this one, that's meaning Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. So stopping there for now. Here at the beginning of these verses, the author is really just stating the very obvious, all right? He's established. Here's the qualifications in seven, what you need to be in order to uh, ascend to the role of high priest. And now he's like, and this is what they do. 
This is what all high priests do. They offer gifts and sacrifices. So if Jesus is going to be high priest, he obviously needs to do that as well. And we, uh, spoiler alert, he did, right? The best one, the greatest kind, the once for all sacrifice. But this is just what our author is pointing out. And he's saying, hey, this is what Jesus needs to do as well. And then he goes on to say, and then as he did this, as he carried out this ministry, the ministry that he performed, it was superior to what they had done. Looking at this verse by verse, in verse 4, he does mention, though, he says, hey, and if Jesus was here on earth, uh, he wouldn't be a high priest. Now, the first time I read that, as I was looking at this week, I'm like, that's kind of like counterintuitive to, I think, the point you're trying to make, right? It's like, what, now you're saying he couldn't be or wouldn't be a priest? But here's the thing. He, this is the thing that I love. This isn't a discussion right now about Jesus not actually being a legitimate high priest. It's not about his underqualification. It's actually about his overqualification. And it's a highlighting that Jesus' call to high priest wasn't in the same place and position as the high priests on earth were feeling. Jesus was called to a greater place, to a higher arena where he would perform as high priest. Our author is basically saying here that Jesus didn't come to earth Get, to get caught up in the pageantry of how high priests functioned in the temple and in the tabernacle here and now. His call was to something higher, was to serve in a place that is greater. And as this verse was going to talk about, to serve in the place that isn't the shadow, but is the fullness thereof. That is where Jesus was called to be high priest. So he's just like, yeah, if Jesus was down here, it's like, the, uh, in my mind, it's like the author is saying like, okay, you guys are playing um, checkers and Jesus is playing chess. Like, these are two completely different arenas. He didn't need to come and, and try and follow in the line of all of these, I think there was like 84 or 86 high priests who weren't able to fulfill what they were being asked to do. Jesus' arena and the place he was called to serve is significantly greater. He was not called to that place to serve and get caught up in the Levitical priesthood. Like, he didn't look around. And I, I was thinking about this. I'm like, because when you have to think about Jesus as being fully human, right? Think about Jesus Christ being fully human. And I just kind of imagine like what it might have been like for him. And maybe you can identify with this. Maybe Jesus thinking and knowing, having a sense and awareness and like aware, knowing I'm called to this thing. I'm called to something. I'm called to be a leader, to be this high priest. But he didn't look around and be like, hey, they're kind of doing it. Maybe I should do it the way that they're doing it. Right? He didn't look. He knew the call God had for him. He stayed committed to it, even though, and, and I think this is where we can sometimes get lost in our callings, is we feel that God is calling us to something, and we look around and we see other people functioning kind of in that arena that we would want to serve in, and then we think, oh, I'm, I'm going to just try and mirror what they're doing. Jesus didn't do this. He was so, so set in his way. He knew exactly where God was calling him. He knew his arena was higher. He knew his call was greater. And he was just absolutely astute in pursuing what God was leading him towards. So much so that even when his friends were like, hey man, uh, I'm kind of questioning your, your, what you're doing right now. He'd be like, uh, get out of my way. 
He'd literally tell them, get behind me. He was so set on this greater call that God had on his life. And I, I just love that. He didn't settle for, for like doing the common, doing what, what always was being done. He was like, no, God's called me to something greater. This is what our author is trying to see. He's like, it's apples and oranges. Jesus wasn't called to serve in the earthly sanctuary. His seat was higher and the ministry that he performed was superior. God was calling him to something greater, which our author then turns to in verses 5 and 6. And we touched on this last week in our sermon, but here our author really brings out this topic in full force again. The fact that the sanctuary, the temple, the tabernacle, however you want to talk about it, however you want to say it, it is a shadow. It is merely a shadow of what is truly in heaven. It is a shadow. Like I thought, I was thinking about this week, I'm like, it's kind of like Lego, right? Like Lego will often come out with, um, with, with sets that are designed after like large world monuments, right? I know they have like a Lego Taj Mahal. They have a Lego Colosseum in Rome. They have a Lego Eiffel Tower. They have a Lego Titanic, right? And those things all look and somewhat resemble the things that they were designed after, that they are a mirror of, they're a shadow of those things. There's a trace amount. We talked about that last Sunday. Shadow can refer to trace amount. There is a trace amount of what those things all look like in the Lego design, but they are not the fullness. I love what one commentator said. He put it this way. He says, a shadow has no real substance on its own. No independent existence. It's merely proof that there is a greater reality. This is exactly what our author is saying about the Jewish temple, the Jewish sacrificial system, all of this. He is saying it was only a shadow. It and of itself, it is just merely proof that there is a greater reality. And now our author is saying in that greater reality, this is where Jesus serves and he serves there as our mediator. I love that word, mediator. It means one who intervenes between two in order to make or restore peace and friendship to form a compact or ratify a covenant. This is what Jesus has done, and this is what he continues to do because his place of ministry is so much higher. Right? And, 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 and maybe this is an oversimplification, but I also thought about this. I'm like, hey, in big corporations, in big industries, where does the top boss and top executives usually have their office? On the top floor, right? And when it comes to being high priest, it doesn't get much more top floor than Jesus being our great high priest serving in the real, true tabernacle in the presence of God in heaven. This is what our author is trying to communicate, that his work is superior. A superior workman turns out superior work. Jesus' work is greater. The place where he serves is greater. The sacrifice that he offered was greater. In fact, I was thinking about this this week. His sacrifice is so much greater, and we know that, right? And, it's, and, and here's the thing. It is great because it was that one-time only ever needed sacrifice, but I also discovered that, like, in my opinion, it's also the only sacrifice a high priest gave 
that was actually a sacrifice on behalf of the high priest. If that makes sense, I will explain if it does not. What I'm getting at is this. Every sacrifice and every offering that the high priests presented came from the people. Like they received, on the Day of Atonement, when the bulls were sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people, it says the people provided the bulls. It wasn't like that sacrificial giving, you know, like, hey, I have $100, I'm going to give away 20 There is a sacrifice in that giving, right, from us. We feel that a little bit. These high priests didn't feel that. The sacrifices that they offered were provided by the people, and then they offered them. And now we have Jesus, where he comes And he doesn't even ask us for anything to offer. We can't bring anything to him to offer that he's going to lay on the table. He just comes. He serves as our high priest. Then he is that perfect sacrifice. He climbs on there himself, sacrifices his own body, his own flesh, and his blood, asking nothing of us and just saying, now come and receive the fulfillment of all things simply by faith. His ministry is so far greater than any high priest who came before him. And I love it because here's the thing. Yes, he does. If you are a Christian, the scriptures do say, hey, lay down your life. We are called to, yes, lay down our lives, give that up. But it's with this offer, right? What is it? So that we may pick it up again renewed, refreshed, reinvigorated, and restored in our relationship with our creator. Jesus accomplishes so much greater things because the covenant that he is mediator over was founded on better promises. And actually, we're going to see, and it predates the law and the covenant. The covenantal law that came by Moses, the promise that God had, it predated that. See, there were promises in the law. They were actually just called blessings and curses, right? Where when God gave the law, he would then instruct the people, okay, if you follow my ways, it will go good for you. If you don't follow my ways, it will go bad for you. And as we all know, they mostly like to choose that latter option for whatever reason. But the promise of salvation was so much greater. Now, Hebrews 7 spoke about this. It talks about how uh, Jesus came and he came with an oath. He came with a promise. Uh, Hebrews 7 talks about it as an oath. But I want to just jump in and read for you a bit from Galatians. Because Galatians chapter 3 does an amazing job of discussing this in like really full detail. Now, if you want, you can flip to Galatians 3 now. Uh, It's going to be a little bit confusing though because I've kind of broken it down. I've picked out sections. That's why I didn't give you exact like scripture reference versus this to this. Um, But this is from Galatians 3. Read it. And I love the way our author is explaining how the law does not erase the promise that had already been given. God's promise of a savior was always his goal. Galatians 3. Promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, who is Jesus Christ. What I mean is this. The law was introduced 430 years later, and it does not set aside the covenant that previously established by God and do away with this promise. Why then was the law given at all? 
It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. As Hebrews has explained, the law was given to expose sin and reveal our need for a Savior. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, the righteousness would certainly, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Scripture declares the whole world is a prisoner of sin. We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. This is what Hebrews is trying to help its readers understand and comprehend. It is that reality that all along God's promise was for something so much greater than the law. He's trying to highlight that the law all along should have been pointing them back to that promise. We talked about this last week, talking about how these people should have been looking and thinking there had to be a better way. Our author then continues in his reasoning by now quoting from the Old Testament again, and we're going to finish our reading here this morning in Hebrews, starting in verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. We needed a better way and it has been provided. The old covenant wasn't the solution. I, I wanted to, I, in my mind right now, I was tempted to compare it to putting a band-aid on a bullet hole, the old covenant, but like it wasn't even that because a band-aid would still like soak up some of the blood even if it did a really poor job. Like that wasn't even what the law did. It literally just exposed how bad the wound was and how badly it needed to be properly addressed. This is what the, all of Hebrews has been trying to showcase, that the old covenant wasn't the answer. And another thing that I find so interesting about the old covenant is this, is that not only was the old covenant not the answer, the old covenant didn't do anything to actually help the people. Like, it did nothing in assisting the people in really fulfilling what was being asked of them. It was conditional. It came with explicit instructions to follow. And then, uh, as history would reveal, over time, the people would develop even more laws in order to help them keep the laws that had already been given. Like, it was not equipping by any means. 
There was nothing about it that helped these people fulfill it. And it should have been overwhelming. It only offered life to people who would fully follow the letter of the law to a T, which we discover from the Old Testament. Just the, the whole Old Testament is a revelation that ain't no one able to do that. That no one was ever able to do that. It, oh, time and time again, there was not one person who was able to fulfill everything in the law. Like, this should have been overwhelming. The laws should have been overwhelming to these people. Unfortunately, they became, in a lot of ways, comforting for the people. But it really should have been overwhelming. Like, I even just think about the times in the Old Testament story in the narrative where it mentions that there was a public reading of the law, Right? Moses did this with the people. There was a couple kings who would do this. He'd gather the nation, and he'd found a scroll somewhere, and he's like, and then he reads the law. And like, if it's really like the whole of the law, maybe I'm wrong for thinking this, but every time I read those stories in the Bible, I'm like, that must have been brutal. Like, that must have been so boring. Like, am I right? Would you like us to do that one day? Like, it would take so long. And, and, and even though like, maybe that's wrong for me to think, I actually think it's kind of the point, right? I actually think it was kind of the point that hopefully at some moment in the reading and the hearing of all of these laws that they needed to abide by and follow, the people might stop and go, is this really the answer? This is impossible. Like this isn't setting us up for success, I, would, I hope there's a better, is there a better way? Can we do this differently than this? Like, I really think this is what must have went through those people's minds. This was precisely the point. Like, this, could you imagine if I came to you and I said, hey, I'm going to give you all, and I'm going to reasonably expect you to know what to do and to pass it, all right? I'm going to give you all the entrance exam to become certified as a doctor here in Canada. All right, so this is what you would receive after you've done all your schooling and your residency and all of that. I'm going to give you that exam. You should pass it. Also, staple to the back, there's a bar exam as well. Okay? And I'm just going to assume that you should just be able to pass this test. And guess what? I'm not going to help you at all. I'm not going to teach you. I'm not going to instruct you. I'm not going to give you cue cards. This is just know these things and do them. Like, this is the weight that I feel the law should have landed on these people when they'd hear. I mean, and it clearly did because the Jewish people were so concerned in keeping these laws. That's why they are some of the earliest people to develop school systems for their children so they could send their kids from a very young age. They would study and know the first five books of the Bible. They would study and know this law because it was crippling them because of the weight that there was. And unlike the old covenant, though, we find out that the new covenant that has come, it has come and it is better. It is far superior because it is built off of that promise that came first. And then when that promise was revealed, it also then comes with power for us. It does not come and leave us in a place where we are ill-equipped to walk out this life. The new covenant comes with a promise, with a transforming power that can come into the lives of those who place their trust, their faith, and belief in Jesus Christ. The new covenant is so beautiful. 
It didn't come with this laundry list of like, do this, do that, this is right, this is wrong. Jesus steps in, he goes, those things are all fulfilled. And now instead of uh, do this and don't do that, it then equips us, renews our minds and changes our hearts, draws us into an intimate relationship with our creator so that the reason we don't do this and we don't do that isn't because it's law, but it's because of relationship. It's because we sincerely, genuinely, with all of our hearts, want to honor the God we so love and who so loves us first. It is a complete flipping upside down of what there was in the previous covenant. This one, it's not legalism, it's love. It's not law, it's relationship. And this is what Jeremiah is getting at when he so beautifully pens these words where he says, I'm going to put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. He wants to renew minds and he wants to soften hearts. That's why Jesus declares that we should be, that we must be born again because this can and does and will happen. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and the confidence of what he has done as he has come, served as our high priest, and now continues to serve in that greater, better, true tabernacle, that true place of worship, chapter 7 calls it. He comes and transforms a new nature that is powered by renewed relationship with our Savior. New lives powered by the Holy Spirit, the same one that raised him from the dead. And like, here's the thing. You may be sitting there, and I'm aware of this because I know what it's like. And you may be like, I don't really always feel that. Right? If we can just be real honest, real transparent Christians right now for a second. Can we do that? You're sitting there and maybe going, I don't feel completely invigorated by the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. But I want you to know, that's why I'm saying it, because we need that reminder. I need that reminder, because just because the hairs might not be standing up on the back of my neck, that doesn't mean it's not true. This is true for you if you are here and you are in Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit moves in you and through you and can transform you and renews you, your heart, your mind, your soul soul, you're everything. Unlike anything the old covenant ever did, you are called and you are equipped. This is what Christ has done. 2 Timothy 1.7, the new covenant comes with power. This is what it says, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but he gives us power, love, and self discipline. I love that. To now go forth and fulfill what is asked of us. We have been given the power of love and self-discipline. The new covenant comes. Listen to this. It doesn't restrain. It renews. It doesn't hinder. It helps. It doesn't convict. It cleanses. It doesn't demand. It delivers. It doesn't hold captive. It liberates. This is what is done in the new covenant. It doesn't demand perfection, but it comes and makes you pure, and then it equips you to walk that life out here and now today. This is what our author is trying to communicate. And I just want to know, if you're confident, comfortable enough to do so, how many of you, since coming to know Jesus, since coming to know the Lord and walk with him, have felt and seen uh, uh, desires in your life shift? 
Yeah, I have. Like, I have had things in my life that I used to feel anchored to, I guess you could say, things that I felt like I may never feel an escape from that. And some of them just melted away in my relationship with Jesus. Yes, some of them have had to be more intentional in me addressing them and getting them out of my life. But if you are here, you know that this is true, that the new covenant comes with power to help you and to equip you. You have all tasted it. That's because the new covenant comes and it aims at the heart. The new covenant comes and aims at the heart because that is what God has always been after. And I love that the new covenant is here and it's not going anywhere. It's here to stay because where Jesus serves is in that heavenly tabernacle, that unmoving sanctuary where he will reign and rule forever. Now, I don't know if you were here last spring when we started our Hebrew series, but uh, I preached the opening message, and in it I was talking a little bit about background info about Hebrews. Now, uh, you may remember that we don't know who the author is specifically of Hebrews, but one thing that most scholars will all agree on is when Hebrews was written, and that is that it was written before 70 A.D., now, the reason they say that is because it was in 70 AD that the Jewish temple, the last one that there has ever been on earth, it was destroyed. And because of that fact, scholars say that Hebrews was clearly written prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD because this book has such heavy themes discussing the temple. And so our closing, the final verses here that we covered in chapter 8, there is some speculation that perhaps it was written with an air of prophecy. Because what our author says is that these things, this temple that so represented this old covenant, it did very quickly soon disappear for these people. That temple is gone. It has never to date been rebuilt. The old covenant is gone, but the new one is here, and it is not going anywhere. And Jesus reigns and rules there. That is where he is currently seated right now. He is seated right now in that place. And that alone, that wording that he is seated there is complete difference from what was happening for the priests who served in the earthly tabernacle. Like, I always, not always, but I, I actually think, and I still think this, that being a priest and serving in the tabernacle, like on earth here, must have been a lot like shopping with your wife. Right? Now, I should just say this. I actually, I'm a great shopper, and I like shopping with my wife, but I do run into the same issue most men do. There's nowhere to sit. There's never anywhere to sit. If I have to hold a purse, can I at least have a chair? Okay? There's never anywhere to sit in these places. And this is what it was like for the priests serving in the tabernacle in the temple here on earth. In chapter 9, it's going to jump into talking about the artifacts that were in the tabernacle, and you aren't going to read about there being a chair. And that was to showcase, to represent, so that it was clear to the priests and to everyone that their work was never done. That there was always a need for another sacrifice. There was always going to be demand for another offering, because their work was never, ever done. 
in the place, in the holy place, which is where they did most of their work, they could never just go pull up a golden chair and sit down. Their work was never done. But I will say this, in the holy of holies, that place that the great high priest could only enter into once a year, there was a seat in there. And it was called the mercy seat. And I absolutely love the fact that in Hebrews 8, it opens up and tells us that Jesus is now seated in the presence of God, which means he is seated in that place, in the Holy of Holies. Who is seated there? Our King of mercy is forever seated in the Holy of Holies. I love that this is how Hebrews 8 draws it out, that Jesus, his work is done. He's provided that once and forever sacrifice for our sins. He's seated down. But he still does, still does work for us. This is what I love. Hebrews, it says it in two ways. It refers to him as mediator and intercessor. Hebrews 8 verse 6 says Jesus is mediator of a better covenant. In Hebrews 7.25 it says, Since he lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely anyone who comes to God through him because he intercedes for us. I looked up that word this week because in my mind I was like, uh, mediator and intercessor, are they not like very much the same thing, right? It's kind of like, I'm the middleman, I'm the go-between. So I was interested. I was like, well, were those different Greek words that they used? Why did they choose to use different words that kind of sound so the same? So I looked into it, and what I discovered is that very much uh, like a lot of the words that we use that take different meanings over time, right? Uh, So did this word intercessor. And I love that it came to be known as a way of referring not just as someone who is an in-between, but someone who had intimate access to petition the king. This is what Jesus is. This is what he does for us as our intercessor. He goes and he has intimate access access to on our behalf petition the king and he has then opened up the door so that we may now come as sons and daughters and stand before the king i love that this is what he does for you and me today and when we walk into this our lives can be changed and transformed forever this is what hebrews wants us to see The picture that the Jewish people had been given through the law and through the sacrificial system and through the temple and even through the high priest, he wants them to understand that was just a shadow. That was just an image. That was just a rough, vague concept of the fullness that has now come and that has swallowed up the old covenant in all of its glory and splendor because of what Jesus has done. And it has not left us empty-handed. I couldn't imagine what it must have been like, right, for those Jewish people who were able to accept the truth of what was being explained in Hebrews, who walked from Old Covenant into the new one. Like, I can't even imagine. Because just think, these people who had never, and, and maybe, and if you haven't, I pray that you do. I truly pray that you have an encounter like this with the Lord. But one of those moments where you sit there, and like, he just for some reason lifts back the veil, maybe in worship or in prayer or what you're reading his word and he just touches you and you're just moved to tears well at least I am but you're not surprised by that and you're moved to tears with the reality of how deeply he loves you right you're just sitting there and you're 
overwhelmed. Like, could you imagine these people who have only known old law, who have only known that the average person could never enter into the presence of the Lord, to shift from that to just the picture of a priest in his garb and a big temple and a curtain and God's back there, to then having a real encounter with the living God and the Holy Spirit moving through their body. I cannot help but imagine they, like us, would have sat there and go, the picture that we had been given just sucks compared to what the reality is of where Christ was leading us. This is what Hebrews wants us to understand. He's done something so much greater, and I love the fact that he comes after our hearts because I got to tell you, my heart still needs changing. My heart still needs changing today. I think if we're honest, all of our hearts do. There's a, a quote, I wrote it down, I don't know, a while ago, and I think about it so often, it says, um, oh, now I can't even remember. What does it say? It says, um, the heart of each matter is usually a matter of the heart. The heart of each matter is usually a matter of the heart. And I love that Christ has come to renew those hearts because nothing in this world needs renewing more than my human heart, and that's what he's after. He's not here for external action. He's saying, let me change your heart, and that's going to trigger that. Let me change your heart, and you are by default going to function in a completely different way. This is what Jesus has come to do, and he can do that in your life if you give him the opportunity to this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now. And as they do, I just want to finish off this morning with a, a quote. It's, it's actually a quote and, and a story. Uh, and I'm going to read a part of an article that a man wrote. And his name is Matthew Paris. There's a man named Matthew Paris, and he wrote an article a number of years ago. Now, at the time that this article was written, he was actually a writer for the Times newspaper in London. Uh, he was an award-winning author. He had been a former member of parliament there, and he was a very staunch and devout atheist. Okay? Now, he grew up in Africa. And for one of his writing assignments, he was sent back to Africa, actually, of all places, to his home country. And he was supposed to write an article where he reviewed and looked at the impact of humanitarian aid organizations, right? These organizations that come in to try and build up and help and equip these local communities. So he goes back to Africa, to his home country. And at the end of his time there, he comes back and he writes this article, and this is the title of his article that went in the Times paper. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. Here's what he wrote. I am now a confirmed atheist, but I have become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. It is sharply distinct from the work of secular non-government organizations, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, 
Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real and the change is good. This witnessed by a staunch atheist who claims if we want to change the world, it starts in our hearts. If we want to see active, living transformation here in our community today, right now, it starts in our hearts first and foremost. And that is exactly where Christ wants to come and change you this morning. So I want to ask, we are going to close uh, off our message soon right now. And I'm just going to pray. I just want to ask you, if you just close your eyes and bow your heads, if you're online, will you pray with us? But if you are here this morning and you have never tasted the life-changing impact of Christ's love in your life, if you are so bold, would you just put your hand up where you are this morning and say, I want that. I need that. I want my heart changed. If you're online now or in the future, will you send us an email, office at duncanchurch.com. We want to connect with whoever you are. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking like I talked about, I haven't felt it. It's been a while. I believe that I have the Holy Spirit, but I haven't felt the truth of that power and you would like to. If that's you this morning, would you just maybe put your hand up where you are? I want to pray over you as well. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I come before you and any heart in here, Lord God, hands that have went up here or online in this moment or in the future, Lord God, that are saying, Lord, I need that. I need that change. I need that heart transformation that you say you will bring. Lord Jesus, I pray that as these people will confess that you died for their sins, rose again from the grave, that you will send your Holy Spirit to transform their lives here and now. Give them one of those moments where they sit back and they go, every single idea, picture, and vision I ever had of who God is and who Jesus was pales in comparison to the reality of your love. Lord God, I also want to pray this morning for any heart that's in here, maybe even those who feel so beat down that they are even questioning, that they weren't even willing to raise their hand and say, I need to feel that power. Lord God, I want to ask right now for a special outpouring of your spirit in these lives that we will walk in the confidence of the power that you have given us through your death and resurrection. Lord God, we thank you for who you are and all you've done. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving once again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.